Respect is at the heart of God's intention for sexual expression. Is that quality thriving in your Christian community? All too often, the answer is no. As the world exploits the beauty of women, Christians often react with extra-biblical and often legalistic rules. The result is a culture of myths that distance men and women rather than bringing them together to be a team so we can protect women from abuse and call men to respect. Dana Gresh debunks four myths about modesty and presents the truth that empowers both men and women to foster communities of respect in this message delivered to students at Cedarville University. I want to start with the word respect. Respect is at the heart of God's intention for sexual expression. And I want to share with you one of the best kept secrets in the Bible. It's a little known, little talked about word, but from Genesis to Revelation, we can learn such a rich theology about sexuality from it. It's the word in the Old Testament that's used for sexual intimacy between a husband and wife. It's the word yada. It means to know to be known, to be deeply respected. Not one inkling of a reference to the physical act taking place between husband and wife, it transcends that and goes to the deeply emotional and perhaps spiritual connection that two humans can know together, and it is laced richly with respect. Is that what you see? in the message about sexuality coming out of Hollywood? Is that what you see in the messages about sexuality on your favorite Hulu series? Is that what you're being programmed to believe, that sex is an act of respect? Or is it possible that we're being programmed quite to the contrary? God's very definition tells us that the respect of others and ourselves is a piece of sexuality, and that requires self-control. Now, morality aside, sex thrives in an atmosphere of self-control. Some of the most liberal sexual studies out there tell us that when we approach sex with some element of self-control, that it's better. One of the most liberal studies out of the University of Illinois in Chicago said that the most sexually satisfied people were not college co-eds having sex with anyone they wanted, and the average male college student will graduate with 9.7 sexual partners and the average female with 7.2. They're not having the best sex. No, the best sex is those, the, those middle-aged married people who've been in a mutually monogamous relationship who had only one sexual partner. Self-control and respect ushered in awesome sex. That's a message you hear a lot, isn't it? And the news on having more sexual partners is that men in particular who have more sexual partners throughout their life report the least amount of sexual pleasure. From a purely practical point of view, if you want to have great sex, you better think about self-control. And one of those areas of self-control is this area of modesty. 
It's the reason that I've chosen to write about it. I have to tell you that when my publisher and my husband sat me down 10 years ago and said, your books on sexual purity are doing great. How about one on modesty? I said, no, thank you. No interest. I like clothes, I like fashion, I like shopping. I like a good hair day. I'm not having one, but I like them when I do. Today I want to set the record straight and be honest with you and really delve into some areas where as a leader in the modesty and purity movement, maybe we haven't taught as well as we should have. And it's maybe sent some inadvertent messages to you that um, have led you to believe lies and myths. The first myth is this. The modesty movement forbids the expression of feminine beauty. I have two Barbies in my office. One is a good old classic American Barbie. They say that if Barbie were a real living woman, let me say this carefully, that she would be so heavy in one certain region of her physique that she would have to walk on all fours. <laughs> True fact. The American Barbie sensualizes the female body, but I also have in my office a Muslim Barbie, did you know there was such a thing? Her name is Fula, and she is covered from head to toe with the exception of her face. And I want to state that I believe that both of these dolls create the same end result, a hyper-focus on the female body. Both raise awareness of a woman's sexuality and reduce her to being a mere body. And you know what? There are some pockets in Christianity where you may as well wear a burqa, girls. Because the expression of feminine beauty is repressed. And when I go into those cultures, it's funny, when I greet the men, the male leaders there, it's like, they don't want to touch me because I may have some sort of female plague. Have you been around this? I just came from the Dominican Republic where my husband and I worked for an entire month and it was really interesting to me that um, everywhere you go, the Christian brothers kiss the sisters. And I, I'm not talking about, yeah, not like that, no. I'm talking about every time I would be greeted by one of the pastors where I was speaking in his church or one of the male Christian leaders, they would come in for one. And I, I didn't know what to do with that at first. It terrified me. But as I watched, now I should say it was an air kiss, all right? It was like they, they like come in on the cheek and there's this just intimate moment and it's not at all sexual. It's very familial. It's, it's a family type He's greeting his sister. But what I noticed is that the women there were, though very modest, extremely beautiful. And there wasn't a repression in the way that they approached modesty. And so there was a freedom for those women to celebrate their beauty. And the men were celebrating with them. It's biblical. Did you know five times in the New Testament it says we're supposed to greet each other with a holy kiss? Now don't start kissing each other on the campus today because that could go really badly for me. 
The truth is we must teach women to celebrate their feminine beauty as we teach modesty. And if we do not do both of them simultaneously, we end up with one of these terrible extremes that actually does sensualize a woman. Myth number two. Modesty is a form of misogyny. Oh, there are a lot of blogs about this one. This myth is an example of how Christian culture is formed more by secular lines of thinking than by biblical thought. Third wave feminism has posited the thought that teaching modesty and purity is a form of misogyny primarily because it is largely directed at women. There aren't any secret keeper boys. There are no ministries on modesty for boys and men. There are very few books on modesty for men. I have one in my possession. It's for men and women. Those third wave feminists have actually gone on the record as saying that when I teach modesty, I'm promoting rape culture. Ooh, are we gonna talk about that? Yes. (laughs) Does modesty and teaching modesty promote rape culture? A better question might be, does rape culture even exist? Oh, now I'm gonna step in something. Last year, a Time Magazine article declared that it was time to end rape culture hysteria. Writer Carolyn Kitchens championed the report of the nation's leading anti-sexual violence organization, RAIN, which rebuked the overemphasis on the concept of rape culture as a means of preventing rape, citing that 90% of rapes on college campuses are committed by 3% of the male population. RAIN argues that rape is a product of men who are ignoring the overall cultural message that rape is a horrific crime. Rape is in fact on the decline. The National Crime Victimization Survey indicates that rape occurrence in the 1980s was 2.4 per 1,000 people. Now it is 0.4 per 1,000. Even RAIN reports that sexual assault has fallen by more than 50% in recent years, and it's still too much. And Christians, we need to be the first to rise up to defend these women. And I want to tell you that I have done that. There have been times when it has been very costly to my ministry from a practical point of view as I defended women who were victims, but I would do it again. But here's the thing. The modesty promotes rape culture idea is a dogma promoted by third wave feminism. And it is scripture that should be informing the Christian conversation about modesty, purity, and sexual violence, not the thinking of leading third wave feminists. There's nothing wrong with teaching women to dress and act and pursue modesty. In fact, it's very, very right. I want us to look at one scripture today, and there are really only four references in scripture to modesty that directly teach about modesty. Ironically, two of the big ones, 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4, and 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10, the hallmark verses of modesty, are addressed to women. 
I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothing. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. When one Christian blogger very indifferent to my message on modesty, wrote about me. She wrote this. The underlying assumption that Secret Keeper seems to endorse is that the female body, if not bad, is at least overwhelmingly temptive and tantalizing. With all due respect, the female body is tempting and tantalizing. They do not use, why do they use women to sell razors for men? Why, when the Academy Awards came out with a modesty dress code, was it all about the women? Why don't men wear belly shirts? <laughs> Lord God, forgive us for the 80s. Advertising gurus have discovered that if you put the photo of a woman in an ad, you increase the length of time someone spends looking at it by as much as 30%. It doesn't quite work that way you can put a guy in there. Proverbs 5, 18 and 19 reads, May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you be ever captivated by her love. And if we were to really translate that last little phrase more accurately, it would say, may you be intoxicated by her sexuality. <laughs> Steamy verse. God created the female body to be Well, guys, we're just cuter than you. We are just cuter than you. I mean, look around. (laughs) Teaching on modesty is primarily addressed to women because the scriptures primarily addresses the teaching of modesty to women. Somebody say amen. Amen. And we are cute. Myth number three, men are off the hook. You probably noticed that I'm not into political correctness. This might be where I should suggest to you men not to dress like the Abercrombie guy. And for the love of all things decent, please pull up your pants over your boxers. but that's not what I feel led to tell you today. (laughs) These texts, the feminine modesty texts, I will call them, are about sexual allurement. And they are directed to women, that women should be in self-control, and that women should express respect in the way that they present themselves. But does that mean that you're off the hook? And what I'm really asking is this, Am I saying, if women dress modestly, men will not lust? Let me be very clear. Your lust is your problem, period. Here is your modesty verse, gentlemen. Matthew 5, 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
Guys, you are responsible for the way that you look at women, no matter how she may choose to dress. And I understand that you live in a culture that feeds you filth. I understand that you live in this, with this constant IV drip of pornography and sensuality. Listen, your grandfathers did not struggle with pornography because they didn't have to drive by the Hooters billboard. They didn't have to walk in the mall through the Victoria's Secret poster. They didn't have to endure commercials during football that were mild pornography. But you do. And so it just means that you cannot be complacent. A woman who is unaware of these teachings on modesty, God's word on modesty, perhaps even a woman who is spiritually lost, should be able to walk across this campus. She should be able to walk across this campus dressed anyway. And because you are feeding yourselves the scriptures and feeding yourselves God's truth, that what rises up in you would not be the question, what can I get from her, but what can I give to protect her? What are you feeding yourselves? What are you feeding yourselves? The truth, men, is that you live in a culture where you must let God train your heart to be attracted to modesty and to be protective of a woman who doesn't understand that. Myth number four. Modesty is about clothes. Girls, we can't wear anything we want. God's word says that if we love him, we will obey him, and he does address the issue of modesty in the scriptures, and we don't get to pick and choose which verses we like and which verses we don't like. We don't try God's word on like we do a pair of jeans to see if it fits. Let's go back to 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothing. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. The point of 1 Timothy 2, 9 has nothing to do with clothes. Do you see it? It's about something altogether different that a woman is supposed to wear. The good things that you do. It's about driving a friend to a job interview even though you don't have time. It's about helping to mentor a tween. It's about baking cookies for a friend who is struggling to study for finals and I'm not talking about the guy you're trying to win over. It's about giving up a year of your life to fight sex trafficking by raising money and doing behind the scenes work where your name will never receive any glory. These are the things that this verse is about. It's about wearing the good things that we do so that others can see him, so that we can make him known. But it does mention clothes, doesn't it? God does not want your super tight skinny jeans that look like they were painted on to distract others from seeing the good work in your heart. 
The truth is that modesty isn't about clothes, it's about the gospel. It's about your testimony being so set apart that you look different. It's about, instead of saying, look at me, look at him. Look at God. The greatest sin of immodesty is not how short your skirt is. The greatest sin of immodesty is that we're saying, look at me instead of look at God. Men and women, serve one another. Respect one another. Foster self-control in your lives and in your minds. Now right now, some of you were wishing that you had taken me up and headed to Clifton Mill for some pancakes. I wanna read to you a constructive piece of criticism that was set to me recently after I spoke about modesty. This woman wrote to me, I'm just not seeing the message of grace presented in these purity and modesty teachings. Why did Jesus die on the cross? We are righteous because of Jesus, not because of our works. I'm all about waiting to have sex until marriage and using common sense in dressing in a manner that is respectful to yourself and those around you. But these are conversations that play such a minor role in the fabric of our lives. The gospel is about Jesus and God's grace. It is not about purity and modesty. My heart pondered. Is the way that I teach modesty and purity lacking grace? Is the way that you're living it out lacking grace? 11 years ago, Bob and I founded a Christian high school called Grace Prep. We founded it for many reasons. One was that as I was traveling the nation and speaking, again and again and again, there would be at one of my sexual purity retreats for teen girls, a girl who was pregnant, a girl who was broken and repentant and her heart was ready to come into the hospital of the church and be healed and there was never a more important time in her life for her to be nurtured and yet she was about to be kicked out of her Christian school or she was about to be ostracized from her youth group. Bob and I took seriously the tears that we saw in every single one of those girls' eyes, and we prayed, Lord, show us. You know, we came to a passage in 2 Corinthians that has informed the way that we approach sexual sin. And it's a passage that's, um, well, in 1 Corinthians, Paul hears about this man who's having sex with his father's mother. And he says, kick the man out. He is arrogant and proud of his sin. It is the arrogance and pride as much as the sin that Paul hates. But then in 2 Corinthians, we see this this unusual thing that you never see in the church today, hardly ever. Paul says to invite that man back in, to give that man the full rights and privileges of the body of Christ once again. And do you know how much time there is between the writing of those two letters? Months, not years, months. When do we kick the pregnant girl back in? This makes me mad. So we prayed that God would make us an incubator that was a safe place for sexual sinners and that we would be a place where sexual sinners were kicked into us 
when they were repentant, not prideful. We've walked with students through cross-dressing, compulsive masturbation, porn, creating porn, writing erotica, same-sex attraction, hookups, sexting, sexual intercourse. It's ugly, and it's hard, and it's messy. Spiritual hospitals are messy places. Grace is a messy thing. It wasn't until last year that we had a pregnancy to embrace. Chanel came to us when one of our families welcomed her into their home for foster care. She was spiritually lost and pregnant and without a family. Our little school family was ready. After 10 years of walking with the sexually wounded, we were ready to walk beside her in all of her difficulties and all of her mess, not just in love and kindness, but in truth. And we watched as she came to know Christ and gave her heart to him. And we watched as the Holy Spirit changed the way she dressed and talked and acted. It was our desire to honor her at graduation with the Gideon Award, an award for spiritual growth, a big statement for our little school. But there was one little problem. She gave birth that morning. And so my husband headed over to the hospital 10 minutes before graduation, freaking us all out, because it was the most important award we would present that day. This is our ministry. Not the books, not the teaching on modesty, not the teaching on purity, not the research in sexual theology. This is the work of our calling. And the thing is, it's very near to our hearts. Because Bob and I are not the poster children for sexual purity. We'd better fit on a poster for sexual brokenness. This could have been me. But by God's grace, I could have been kicked out of my Christian high school in I could have been the student at Cedarville University making a choice about whether I would protect my reputation or whether I would choose life. By God's grace, I never knew those consequences of my sexual sin. The secrecy and the hypocrisy and the loneliness that I knew because of my sin created a prison of bondage in my life that you can only understand if you yourself are right now in it or have been. And some of you have. I'm here for you. I'm here for you today. I'm here for the lonely heart struggling with same-sex attraction. I'm here for the girl who's just found out she's pregnant. I'm here for the couple that can't stop having sex. I'm here for you, because I was you. The door to that present is opened by James 5.16. Confess your sins one to another, and then you will be healed. When I confessed my sin to someone, God opened the doors of my prison, and I began to walk in authentic Christianity. I was just playing country club before that. I wasn't known. 
the theology of grace comes to life, not in our seminary textbooks, but in the messy ugliness of our lives. And it is those of us set free by his grace that have a tender love and understanding of the rules. Modesty, purity, the respect and self-control of these things. We do not need grace if there are not rules. And if there are not rules, there is not sin. And if there is not sin, you and I don't need a savior. I have needed him so much. I have needed him so much to clean up the ugliest part of my life, to make me worthy of self-control and respect once again. I choose modesty and purity so that my life will say, look at God. The call to holiness is not the root of our Christian faith. It's the fruit of it. This message was presented at Cedarville University, Dana's alma mater. If you enjoyed it and want to learn more about the power of modesty, you'll enjoy a book entitled Secret Keeper, The Power of Modesty by Dana Gresh. Get a copy at danagresh.com. This podcast was produced by Pure Freedom Ministries.